suits. Uh, it's about lawyers. Um, you know, so you got to watch shows about lawyers. But they all have kind of the same plot line, right? There's this intractable case. We're going to lose. We're right. It's definitely not going to work out. My client's going to be nailed. And you know, of course, they're innocent. But, but then comes this shocking new piece of evidence. Or here comes this legal maneuver that we can make. And everybody gets off and our clients are always innocent and everything works out the way we want. Sound right? Well, I'm afraid like in our witnessing, in our gospel presentations, we're thinking like, it's like this show. If I can just find the missing evidence, if I could just get that right word, man, they're going to believe. Or if I could just find the right maneuver or the right strategy, they're going to believe. They're going to be saved. The problem is this. I may work in courtroom dramas, not probably real courtrooms. But when it comes to faith in Jesus, it doesn't work that way. People aren't missing a piece of evidence. They're blind. People aren't missing some new word that you could offer and some great strategy or plan or presentation that you can give them. They have hearts of stone that have to be hearts of flesh. They're dead and they have to live. And so what we're going to see in the text today is Jesus himself with his best words and best claims and best declarations showing us that there's plenty of evidence, but evidence is not enough. It's enough to indict. It's not enough to save them. So we're back into our study of John. We've, we've been off for, for Easter and some uh, exciting special occasions like ordination. And so uh, in John chapter 5 is where we'll be the last part of that. But our main theme in John has been Jesus is the promised Christ and Son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. All right, and so we get that out of uh, chapter 20, verse 31. So believe in Christ, taste, experience, live in eternal life now, and have eternal life prepared and waiting for you forever, right? And so in chapters 2 through 4, a unit we just wrapped up is a unit that dealt with the first sign that Jesus did in his ministry, water into wine. Right? There's this better celebration. The king has come and he's opening up a banquet for his people. And people, his disciples, they saw his glory in that and they believed. Nicodemus didn't and the Samaritan woman did. And the Samaritans from the town heard her and heard Jesus and did. And then the nobleman's son was healed. And he's like, y'all only believe through signs. But then by the end of the story, the nobleman believes the word of Jesus. The nobleman believes in Jesus. And so two miracles book in this section, faith in response to signs that reveal who Jesus is. Chapter 5 is now a new unit. And Jesus does another sign, another miracle with a message. But this time it isn't met with faith. This time it isn't met with people who turn and believe. It's met with opposition. He did it on the Sabbath. How dare you make somebody whole on the Sabbath? And then Jesus, if that's not enough for you, I'm God. Right? He says, that, uh, my father's been working, I'm working. And they're like, they want to kill him because he makes himself equal with God. And he's like, if that's not enough, not only am I God, totally dependent on God. And God, all eternal life has been given to me. And I give it to whoever I want. And the final judgment of the earth, I'm going to do that too. And so those are the claims he's been making throughout this passage. And so like, if you're going to hate me, you're going to hate me for the full reason, not just part of it. If you're going to reject me, you're going to reject me for the full deal, not just part of it. So here it is. Here's the claims. Now, I do this in total dependence on the Father. It's not my will. It's not my accord. It's his. But 
That's the claims. And then the text today, those are pretty big claims, right? To claim to be God is a pretty big claim. To claim to control the keys to eternal life is a big claim. And to, to, to claim that all final judgment comes through you is a big claim. And so Jesus is going to be like, I'm going to give you now witnesses and evidence and corroborating witnesses to prove, to show for those who have eyes to see that I really am all that I say I am and I really can do all that I say I can do. And that's the, that's the function of John chapter 5, 30 through 47. But the evidence isn't enough. And so in this text, it's, it's spoken so that people would be saved. But it's also spoken as an indictment over those who he's talking to who oppose him. It's an indictment, a condemnation of those who will reject it. So let's look at it. John chapter 5, verse 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works I am doing bear witness about me to the fa- that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of Jesus would fill us with life and hope and certainty God, that your truth by your spirit would banish doubt. God, that we would know who we are. That we would know we belong to you if we are in Christ. That we would know the mission you've set before us. We would know the spirit that resides in us. We'd know, Father, your love for us. We'd know your righteousness over us. But God, I pray that there would not be anyone here who believes that and it's not true. I pray there wouldn't be anyone here that's got some close but lesser faith. Some close but lesser trust. God, would you let words like this awaken them? Would you let words like this press on them the truth of Jesus? Press on them the salvation of Jesus? That they might believe. That they might be rescued. God, would you do 
more than we could ask and imagine? Would you do more than my feeble words could ever accomplish? For your glory, God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's plenty of evidence to believe, but very few will. There's plenty of evidence to believe, but very few will. Let's look at the the first bit of evidence. John the Baptist's testimony prepared the way for people's faith. John the Baptist's testimony prepared the way for people's faith. Now, generally, when we think about people coming to faith, we think about the moment, right? I was sitting across the, uh, the, the table from them. I shared the gospel with them. They believed. The Sunday school teacher was teaching. They believed. The preacher was preaching, and they believed. Right? Or however it happened, we think about that last encounter and the gospel was shared and they believed. Well, research kind of shows, uh, as people who have studied this, that on average, it takes somewhere between five and seven encounters with the gospel for somebody to come to faith in Christ. Now, look, can God save somebody the first time the gospel is ever shared with them? Absolutely. But in general, the way it works is that sometimes over a period of years or months or however it worked out in your life, five to seven encounters with the gospel. Nobody remembers number one. Nobody remembers number two. Nobody remembers number three or four or five. We just think it just happened at seven, but it didn't. There were people who faithfully laid the path, faithfully planted the seeds, faithfully shared the gospel, faithfully showed Jesus off, who prepared the way for a later faith, sometimes many years later. And when my mom came to faith, we had witnessed to her for 10 years. And we were not number seven. Her Sunday school teacher was. And Paul said it this way, like in in the book of 1 Corinthians, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Right, And so that, that there are people that you'll never hear about that were part of your gospel story and part of the gospel story of other people's lives. And so the question is, are you willing to be number one? Are you willing to let your life be the planting life? Are you willing to let your life be the watering life? Are you willing to let your life be number one, two, three, and four? And nobody know about it. But one day God may reap the harvest of their life because of your faithful behind the scenes never knowing about labor in the gospel. That was John's ministry. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one that was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. He was the one to walk into a a state of religious apathy and awaken some expectation so that when Messiah broke into the world, people would believe. He was the one that walked into religious ritual. They had been confined to these rules and confined to these rituals and confined to these regulations. And he's the one that walked into that to raise some hope that Jesus would show up on the scene, that Messiah would break into the world. So when he did, people would believe. And when Jesus showed up in the world, it was time for John to fade. And it was time for John to go to prison. It was time for John to eventually be executed. Are we okay with the prepare the way for Jesus kind of ministry? Because that's what's happening. Or that's what we see in in John the Baptist's life. And so let's look at 30 through 32 real quick. Because that transitions us from the last, like, here are my claims, right? And it transitions us into the text today. And so look at verse verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. And if you were to read verse 19, you're like, that sounds very familiar. So he starts it out, right? I can do nothing of my own accord. He ends it. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge. But don't think that my judgment is like petty. Don't think my judgment is, hey, you can treat me bad here, but you just wait. Because in the end, I'm going to get you. That's not Jesus' judgment. Right, I hear and I judge and my judgment is just, my judgment is righteous. My judgment is not the revenge that I want to take on people that treated me bad. Why? Because I don't seek my own will. I seek the will of the one who sent me. 
And so there's this perfect alignment between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. There's this, this sense of like, there's never a sense when Jesus jumps off the script of God or jumps off the will of God or thinks that he knows better than God or thinks that he can do it differently than God and, and it'd be better than what God would have. There's this alignment between the will of God, the will of the Father, and the will of the Son. And so his judgment is a perfect judgment. It's a righteous judgment because it expresses the perfect will of God. It doesn't go off script. Can we say that's our goal? Can we say that's our aim? Like my goal isn't self-promotion. My goal isn't to be light. My goal isn't, I think I can do this better, God. Let me handle this one, God. I'll take care of this. And if I need you, I'll, don't worry, I'll call. Or my will, my will is not my own, it's the Father's will. And then he continues... Uh, or now he moves into the evidence line, like this, this testimony line. There's a no, or, or I'm sorry, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so is Jesus saying, like, if nobody else agreed with me, I'd be lying? No. What he's saying is, I've just made these huge claims. I'm God. I give eternal life. I get to judge the world. Those are some really big claims. And so what Jesus is saying with this statement is, these claims are so big that if I were the only one saying that, then the burden of proof would not be met and it would not be valid. And so he's saying, but I am not the only one saying that. Look at the next verse. He's like, but there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I'm not the only one saying this. The father in heaven who sent me is the father who is affirming that this is true. But look at the text. I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Who is the witness for first? Jesus. And so Jesus lives with rock solid certainty. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows the relationship that he has with the father. Jesus knows the mission that the father has sent him on. And there is zero doubt. There's zero wavering in that. And think about that for a second. Like I tend to have like analysis paralysis. Like there's a couple of options, there's a couple of decisions. I'm like, should I do this, should I do this, should I do this? If I choose, it's going to be wrong. And then when I do make a choice, it's like, ah, I should have done the other. Y'all do that? No, just me, okay. Are y'all going to be quiet today? Either one. And so I I paralyze myself or I make decisions and I always just second guess. Ah, I probably should have made a different one. Or my words, like I'll say stuff and I'm like, oh, I bet that offended him. I said that totally wrong. And so like I live with this perennial sense of like doubt, man, I should have said it differently. I should have decided differently. I should have done it differently. Like you struggle with that sometimes? Jesus never did. There was never a second of Jesus's existence where he's like, okay, am I really God? Does the father really love me? Do I really belong to the father? Am I really on a mission to the cross to save the world? Like there was never a second where Jesus doubted that. And I believe that in Christ, he wants to impart that same thing to you, like where you would not live with a moment of doubt of who you are or whose you are, that you would never live with a second of doubt and that you would wage war against the doubts of your soul, that like you belong to the father in Christ, that you're loved by the father in Christ. You're declared by the righteous, by the father in Christ. Like he would want you to live in that certainty that he has and purchased for you. Because if you live in that certainty, you also live in that mission the same mission that he was about that he has now sent you on. And so Jesus is like, there's one that bears witness. I know, I know that his testimony about me is true. I have certainty, but you need more evidence, right? And so this, this set of, uh, of evidence is not to make Jesus feel better and Jesus feel more secure. It's so you would. 
It's so that those who had opposed him and those who hated him and those who want him dead, that they would understand there is evidence and there is a corroborating witness after corroborating witness that like what I said is true and you will either believe it or you will be indicted by this truth. You will be guilty by this truth. You will be condemned by this truth. And so he's not saying it for himself. He's saying it for those who are in opposition to him. But he's also saying it for us. And he's saying it for those there who would believe. And you see that in this first witness. Look at it. And so you sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. Right? And so you sent to John. Exhibit A. Corroborating witness A. John the Baptist. Now what was John the Baptist's purpose? Right? Go and prepare the way for the Lord. Right, go out and he did this baptism of repentance to wake up spiritually apathetic people and the crowds flooded out there and the leaders flooded out there. Go prepare the way for the Lord. And then he'd go out there and he'd do his baptism of repentance so that you would produce the works that are, that are worthy, that express repentance. And that was his way of preparing a spiritually apathetic or a spiritually ritualistic people for Messiah to come, for God to become flesh and dwell among them and save them. And so you see in each of the Gospels, like this testimony of John the Baptist. And you see it in the book of John. Right? God sent me to prepare the way for him. God sent me. I'm not the light. But I'm going to bear witness about the light. God sent me. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, what is his declaration? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe him. You need to listen to him. You need to see him. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's the forerunner for Jesus. And then the one who sent me, John the Baptist says, the one who sent me said, when this happens, he's the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You need to follow him. You need to believe him. He bore witness. He bore witness. And then look again. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. Like, look, he didn't bear witness so that I knew I was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He bore witness so that you would know. Do you see the next sentence? So that you might be saved. Right? He didn't say it for my certainty. He didn't say it for my sake at all. He said it so that you would believe. He said it so that you would hear my words. He said it so that you would know that I'm the one sent from God. He said it so that you know and that I would take away your sins, not just the sins of the world. Through your faith. And so John bore witness, and there was a while. He was a burning and shining lamp. And for a while, you were willing to rejoice in his light. That quotes, uh, or kind of ripples off of Psalm 132, verses 16 and 17. It says, the saints will shout for joy, for the Lord has prepared a lamp for his anointed. And that's right. So like, John the Baptist's ministry raised the expectations of the people. Something special is happening again. It's been 400 years since God has invaded his people. It's been 400 years since God has spoken to his people. And so when John shows up on the scene, messianic hopes begin to raise. Joy begins to rise. Could it be that Messiah is coming? Could it be that deliverance is here at last? Could it be that God is revisiting his people and even the leaders had the sense of their hopes raised and their expectations raised? And the, and the average person certainly did because they flooded out into the countryside for this. That their hopes and expectations were... For a while you were willing to rejoice in the light of John. Even you leaders. And so what was John's point? I'm not the light. But I bear witness to the light. I'm not the light. But I'm a lamp. That bears witness to the light. And so John's ministry was to prepare the way for the gospel. To visit people's lives 
to wake up a spiritually lazy people. To wake up a people caught in their traditions, caught in their rituals, caught in their sacrifices, caught in their Bible reading. And to wake them up to a greater beauty. To wake them up to a greater Savior so that they would be saved. But I think his witness also wants to say something to us. Are you awake? Are you awake to a greater beauty? Are you awake that you have a better Savior than rituals and religion could ever provide you? John prepared the way. Secondly, Jesus' works and the Father's testimony displayed he was sent by God. Jesus' works and the Father's testimony displayed that he was sent by God. Ultimately, if you look at people long enough, we've said it before, they will show you who they are. And if you will look at the life of Jesus long enough, he will show you who he is. And more than that, he'll show you who God is. He'll show you what God is like. He'll show you what it's like to live in the reign and rule of God. He'll show you what it's like for the disease of the fall to be pulled out and life to be put back in its place. He'll show you what it's like for the the um, isolation of leprosy and the isolation of blood disease and the isolation from community that comes from the fall. What it's like when that gets ripped out and you're placed back into a community of people. If you watch him long enough, he'll show you what he's like. And if you watch him long enough, his works will declare who he is. So let's look at it as he continues on. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Witness number two. The works that I have, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing... They bear witness that the Father has sent me. And so the whole point of John's miracles and not calling them miracles but calling them signs is to say they're miracles that point beyond the miracle to the person, to the miracle worker. And he doesn't want you to just see, look how many cool things Jesus can do with his power. He wants to say, look at all these cool things Jesus can do with his power so that you see Jesus. So that you see that he is the one who is the king who opens a better banquet for you than the world can open. Who sees that he is the one who can take all the ravages of the fall off of the lives of people and restore them back. He is the one that can undo death itself. So that you don't just see cool things that he does, you see him. And that's the point of what he's saying. The works that I have say, here's who I am. The works that I have say, I'm God. The works that I have say, I can give eternal life. The works that I have say that those who are blind can receive their sight. But those who think they can see, they are blind forever. Right? That's what my works do. There was a moment when uh, John the Baptist was in prison facing the doubt that you and I face and Jesus doesn't. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus. And he, he sent them and they asked the question, are you the one? Or is someone else coming? Matthew 11. And so how, how does Jesus answer the question? Go and tell John what you have seen. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Are you the Messiah? The blind see. Are you the Messiah? The deaf hear. Are you the Messiah? Lepers are cleansed. My works tell you who I am. Right? 
And so I've got a better witness than John. I've got the witness of the works of the Father. But the the works of Jesus don't stop with these miracles. They don't stop with undoing blindness and undoing deafness. They do not even stop with bringing the dead back to life. Because all those works lead us to an ultimate work, to a better work. And it is the work of the cross. The works that I'm doing, the works the Father sent me to accomplish was not the works of healing some people to take away their temporal pain and misery. The work of the Father that ultimately sent me was to go to a cross to take away the sins of the world to undo the fall's greatest effect, which is to destroy people's souls and leave them eternally separated from God. And I've gone to a cross and that work tells you who I am. And I died, but I didn't stay dead. And that tells you who I am. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the ultimate work that God sent the Son to accomplish. And they bear witness that He was sent by God. But it's not just His works, right? The Father Himself. The Father who sent me. He Himself has borne witness about me. Now, we don't know the specific instance he's talking about, but what we do know, because the other Gospels were written prior to this, and we, we think John probably had access to them, we know of two instances in the life of Jesus where the Father audibly spoke out of heaven for everybody around him to hear. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and the voice came from heaven of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What is the father saying? I affirm this is my son. I affirm that he is loved. I affirm his life. I affirm his ministry. I affirm his works. He's mine and it's true. And that's that's the father's declaration over the son. He's loved and what he does is true. And then at the transfiguration where for the only time in Jesus' earthly existence, the robe of the despised and rejected man of sorrows was taken off and the blazing glory of who he really was was seen. The Father speaks out of heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him when He says He's God. Listen to Him when He says eternal life is in His hands and He gives it to whoever He wishes. Listen to Him that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. Listen to Him that He holds the final judgment in His hands and He will judge all things at the end of time. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so the father bears witness about Jesus also. The father declares it. But look, there's this threefold indictment that now shows up. Because he knows you aren't going to believe the witnesses. He he knows these people in opposition to him aren't going to believe the words that he's saying. They're not going to bow their hearts to him and believe and be saved like they should be, right? Like John the Baptist's words was meant to, so that you would be saved. You, I want you to be saved. I want you to have life, but, but you're not going to. And so look at his indictment, his voice you've never heard. Moses heard the voice of God, spoke to God face to face. And remember when that happened? They were like, we don't want to hear God's voice. We're terrified of God's voice. You hear him for us. Now God is walking around in front of you. And in the person of Jesus, you don't hear the voice of God. You do not recognize I'm sent of God. You do not recognize my words are the words of God. Condemned. His form you've never seen. Now Moses saw the glory of God pass by and he saw the backside of the glory. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord for the night and walked with a limp ever after that. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and so there were people who saw the Lord. And now the word has become flesh. The word who was God and the word who was with God has now become flesh and is dwelling among you. And you see me, but you don't see God in me. Condemned. 
And then his word is not abiding in you, which will be the last point more. But his word, you don't have it abiding in you. You love your Bible so much, but you don't have the word abiding in you. Because the word who was with God and the word who was God and the word who became flesh and dwelt among us is the word that you do not believe. Do you see that? Like you did not believe the one whom he sent. Condemned. Indicted. The evidence is overwhelming to my claims, but you won't hear it. You won't believe it. It's not enough because you don't have eyes to see it and you don't have hearts to understand it because you will not bow yourselves to believe it. And then the last step he takes. The Old Testament points beyond itself to Jesus as the source of eternal life. The Old Testament points beyond itself to Jesus as the source of eternal life. And I'm going to give you a word here. So if you've been taking a nap, wake up. If your friend besides you taking a nap, you know, little elbow, help him out. Wake him up. You can love your Bible with all your heart. And you can miss Jesus. You can love your study Bible. You can love your translation of the Bible. You can love reading your Bible. You can read the Bible through in a year. Five times, ten times, twenty times. You can Instagram post your Bible. Right? And you can miss Jesus. You can read your Bible every day. You can study your Bible. You can go to Bible study groups. You can go to Sunday school. You can be in small groups. You can be in discipleship groups. You can be in one-on-one groups. You can be in micro groups. And you can love the Bible. And you can completely miss the whole point because his name is Jesus and he didn't write the Bible simply for you to have a little spiritual pick me up in the morning and he didn't write the Bible so that you could have inspirational quotes to post and he didn't write the Bible so that you could dissect it like a scientist and he didn't write the Bible so you would feel good about yourselves for reading the Bible he wrote the Bible so that you would know and fall in love with and follow Jesus Christ with all your heart that's why you have a Bible And if you love the Bible, you can miss him. But if you love him, you'll never miss the Bible. And talking about it like this, like, it's like having a treasure map. You know, the old kind, the real kind. It's like you fall in love with the paper. Wow, this is just such ancient parchment. And oh, the inks and the dyes. I can't believe they're so vivid after all these years. And man, look at the kind of perfectly torn and slightly burnt edges to the page. This is so, this is such an amazing document. While all the time forgetting, but it points to a treasure. It takes you somewhere. And I'm afraid we can do that with our Bible. And so, yes, you can love your Bible and miss Jesus. But if you love Jesus with all your heart, you can't miss the Bible. Because in it, you will find him. In it, it will tell you who he is. In it, it will show you his glory. And in it, it will show you his beauty. And in it, it will show you his majesty. And in it, it will show you your need of him. And in it, it will show you this glorious plan of redemption that happened before there ever was a creation at all. Before there ever was a sin at all, that this glorious plan of redemption, the Father has worked out, centering on the Son. Jesus like, you, you won't miss that. You will soak Jesus out of its pages. And then you won't miss the point. Then you'll love this word because this word grants you a deeper love for the person this word is about. And that's what we're going to see here is this text. It's one of my favorite verses or my favorite sections in, in the New Testament. It's kind of similar. We read this during Easter time, Luke 24. 
right? The disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is walking with them. He's like, what's up? And they're like, are you the only guy around that doesn't know the things that have happened? How'd you miss it? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? And they, you know, went on about the death. And, you know, there's some people that think he may be raised, but we're just walking over to amaze us. And he's like, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have written. And beginning with the law and the prophets, he expanded things about himself from all of the scriptures. Old Testament scriptures, by the way. And so Jesus gave them this Old Testament survey lesson. Jesus here, Jesus here, Jesus here, Jesus here. And the same is true in, in this passage. You know, that, that uh, you, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but they testify about me. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, here is your key to understanding the Old Testament. Find me. See how they point to me. See how they tell you what I'm about. See how they tell you about the plan of God and the redemption of God. See how they tell you about a need for me. Like unlock the scriptures with Jesus. And that's what he does. So look at this. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. You see the stop it? You see the, you see the disconnect? They love their Bibles. They read their Bibles more than you, the religious leaders. They've memorized so many more verses than our best Awana graduates here. Like they memorized the, the five books. They soak in the word. They love the word. They mutter the word. They read the word. They write the word. They put it on the doorpost of their house. They search the scriptures and they think that the scriptures are going to give them life, more word, more life. And they missed everything. Do you see that? They missed everything. You think that you're going to find eternal life, but they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You think the book is going to give you life. You think the map is cool. But it's talking about me. And I give life. You won't come to me. You won't believe me. And then that last part. I'm not going to accuse you to the Father. There's one that's going to accuse you. The guy that you're staking your whole eternity on. Named Moses. The one you've banked your hope in. Moses. The words that he wrote. Moses. He is going to stand before the Father with his head in his hands. And like, they're guilty. Because I wrote about Jesus and they wouldn't believe in Jesus. I prepared the way for Jesus with this book and they wouldn't believe in Jesus from this book. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote all about me. So I want to give you this, just a brief couple of places where the Old Testament wrote about him. So we'll go through it quickly. You don't have to turn. I'll give you references if you want to mark them down. There is a way of reading the Old Testament to ask answer one question. Who is the head crusher? And that may not make sense to you. I'll get there. Don't worry. Who is the head crusher? So that comes from Genesis 3.15. Uh, the fall has happened. God is cursing Adam. He's cursing Eve, but he begins by cursing the serpent. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And before between your offspring and her offspring... You will bruise, you will crush his heel. You're going to wound this offspring. But he will crush your head. Meaning, there's somebody coming, born of a woman, that is going to undo everything you just did, Satan. He is going to undo the fall, and he is going to crush you and crush your works forever. Who is he? And I don't have a ton of time. There's a lot more places. I'm going to give you like the flying in a Delta plane version, all right? So... We're going to fast forward all the way to Abraham. 
Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make a great nation of you and I will bless you and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Read Galatians and you'll find that again. Right. And so we got Abraham and then Abraham's son, Isaac and Isaac's son, Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel. And we come to Genesis 49 when all of, uh, of this family is wrapping up and Jacob leans over his staff and he blesses all the 12 children that he has. But one of them has this blessing. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Your father's son shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He is stooped down and crouched like a lion. Who dares rouse him? Now listen to this. The scepter, that is the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah or from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs comes. Judah, you will rule. Judah, you will have the scepter. Until the one that it ultimately belongs to. And to him will be the obedience of the people. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to Judah. And then 2 Samuel 7. Y'all probably know this guy. His name is David. He's pretty important in the Bible. And in 2 Samuel 7, David's like, I'm going to build a house for you, God. I love you that much. And God's like, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. But it's not a stone house called a temple. It's going to be a lineage And Saul, his reign ended and I cut his offspring off, but your offspring will last forever and the right to rule forever will come out of your line. And so David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And David, there's going to be a, a, ultimately a king that sits on your throne and his throne will be established forever. And so open up your Bibles to Matthew 1, 1 and what do you find? It makes no sense unless you have the question in your mind, who is the head crusher? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Where does that come from? If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. Another one. I mean, it's going to get a little bloody. Y'all going to be all right with this. Isaiah 63, you can mark it in your notes, 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom? You might say mankind. Who is this who comes out of mankind in crimson garments? He is splendid in his apparel. And then this dialogue begins. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The question comes, why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like somebody that treads out the wine press? And the answer, I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, there was no one who was with me. I trod them out in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. I trampled down the people in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured their lifeblood out on the earth. And you're like, oh, that's very Old Testament. Revelation 19. Here we go. 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many crowns. And a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name of which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword to strike down the nation's He will tread out the winepress. 
of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. Psalm 22, you may recognize a few of these statements. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from saving me? We just walked through Easter. These words were just declared. And Jesus says them on the cross, right? And then it talks about all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And as they walked by the cross, they mocked Jesus. If God's so happy with you, why doesn't he come and rescue you? Why don't you come down? And then this last one, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And it says the soldiers were at the foot of the cross and they came across his tunic that had no seams and so they didn't want to rip it. So they cast lots for his clothing. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me, Isaiah 53. He's a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. And he's one that men hide their faces from him, but surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote all about me. Read Leviticus. It's a very bloody first half of the book. Sacrifice this way, sacrifice this way, sacrifice this way. And then come to Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered the once and for all sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. The last one. Maybe I'm the only one who gets excited about these things. Sorry. Jesus in the Old Testament is kind of a passion. Passover, right? Apply the blood to the outposts of the door. And if the angel of death sees the blood, judgment will pass over the household and salvation will visit it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, was slain. And if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. But they don't believe Moses. They don't believe him. Look at this. It's not that I received glory from man back in our text. It's not that I receive glory from man. It's like, I'm not doing this because I need your applause. Right? I don't operate in my ministry so that you will like me, so that you will love me. I operate in my ministry so that, G- that God the Father will be happy because I love God the Father. And so I operate out of love for God, not praise of man. But you don't have the love of God because you live for the praise of man. Do you see that? Right? I come in my Father's name. I have all this evidence and these witnesses. You refuse me. You reject me. Why? Because you love the glory that comes from each other. You love the applause that flattery gets you. You love talking about how good you are and how good they are. And you love just sitting around in groups thinking how great you are compared to all the bad people out there. That almost sounds too close to home, doesn't it? We just love how good we are. We love how much we love the Bible. We love how right our religion is. And it is, by the way, right? Christ, it's true. Don't hear me wrong. But we want to flatter each other. We want to glory each other. We want applause from each other. We want praise from each other. We want each other to, we want people to like us and we want people to approve of us and we want people to applaud for us. And we're more concerned with that than that the Father approves of us. That the Father applauds for us. The glory that comes from God. The affirmation and the applause that comes from God because we've pleased God. And he's like, you've missed everything because you love clapping for each other. And you don't care anything about what the Father thinks of it all. 
God save us. Right? God save us from clapping for each other and not caring if, if the Father is clapping. God save us from wanting other people to think we look good and look spiritual and look religious. While the Father is disgusted by how polluted our hearts have become, God save us from that, right? And that's what Jesus is indicting about their life is you and so much rather people think you're good than that God does. A few practical things as we close down here. First, prepare the way for people to believe. You can't save anyone. You can't have a perfect enough presentation. You can't have the enough right words to get that missing piece to make the case fall in for them. Like that's not on you. It's on God. So what can you do? You can show that Jesus is a better satisfaction. You can bless the people around you. You can serve the people around you. You can fill your table up with people that are far from God. You can open your mouth to declare the goodness of Jesus and the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. You can open your mouth to the gospel. You can prepare the way. You can be number one or number three or number four or number five. And there's sometimes he's going to let you be number seven. He's going to let you be the one that walks across that final threshold with someone because the spirit has drawn him. The gospel has drawn him. But live a life that prepares the way, that sacrifices for people to, to believe, and that belief may not come for years. Second, soak your Bible in, soak in your Bible to love and follow Jesus. Don't read it for inspirational quotes only. Don't read it for spiritual pick up, pick me ups through the day only. Don't read it so that you can like, man, I read it. Don't read it because there's a church reading plan with check boxes. Don't read it to feel good about yourself. Read it because Jesus is in here. And if you will look for him, you'll find him and you'll find he is more beautiful and more satisfying and more glorious than anything you can possibly imagine or be latched onto in your life right now. If you'll look for him there, you'll fall in love with him there. You'll follow him there. And then the last one, yearn for God's approval, not the approval of others. It's so easy to get frozen over people liking us, over people thinking we're smart or thinking we're good or thinking we're spiritual, or thinking we're relevant. And I would just say, like, there's a different yearning you should have in your heart and that I should have in my heart. And it's not the yearning of whether they're happy and pleased and like me. It's, is is the Father pleased? And yes, in the work of Christ, He is. You don't earn it, but there's a life that, that, that the Father approves of and the Father gives glory to and the Father applauds. A life that He empowers by His grace. And do you yearn for that? Do you want that in your life? Whose applause are you living for? And I just plead with you to yearn for the, the applause of the Father. He is more than willing to give it than you are to want it. There's plenty of evidence. Evidence will never be enough for the people you care about. It'll never be enough for them to see glory. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we humble ourselves and in Jesus name we bow and in Jesus name we're free to confess we're free to confess that John has something to say to us in our religious apathy we're free to confess God we've latched on to so many traditions and we've let our heart trust in our own goodness we're free to confess it because there's a savior who is enough to forgive us of it and rescue us from it God, we're free to confess we run after the approval of others. 
because there's a Savior who will rescue us and restore us to the approval of the Father. There's a Savior that shows us the Father's declaration to us is the same as to Him. We are His beloved sons. We are His beloved daughters. God grant us to live like that is true. In Jesus' name, amen.